All right, good morning, Four Oaks. Four Oaks, Jesus Christ is risen. If we don't know each other, I am Pastor Paul, the lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarn. And of course, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Today, of, of course, is the convergence of the two greatest events in human history. And I'm speaking here of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course, and then Sunday at Augusta International for the Masters Golf Tournament. Now, now our own FSU, Brooks Kapka, is was in the lead as of 37 minutes ago, and I don't want to know. Don't tell me, don't tell me, don't look at your phone. But we'll see how that shows up. But the Masters holds a special place in my heart, and I want to tell you why. Now, I, I'm, I'm kind of an anomaly when it comes to golf. I love golf, even though I don't play golf. I once tried to play golf, but it was a crime against humanity, so I no longer played. But the reason I love golf so much is that I grew up going with my dad on Saturday mornings to be his caddy. And by be his caddy, what I mean is pretend to carry his clubs for three holes, then head to the caddy shack to eat and drink while he finished up his round. But this is something we did in the fall. We went to football games on Saturday, but in the spring and the summer, we did, we did golf. And so there was a, a, a huge bond with my dad around this game. And it was always a dream for my dad to go to the Masters. And he had gone in the old days to a practice round or two when you could walk up to the gate and buy a, a ticket to the practice round, but he had never been to the actual tournament, an official round, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. But in 2015, after my mom had passed away, someone found out about my dad's dream. And they reached out to me, and this person said, I, I want to take you and your dad to the Masters, the real thing. Now, of course, as a sports fan, a golf lover, I was absolutely elated. I was going to go to the Disney World of golf. I was thinking about the moon pies, the souvenir cups, the peach ice cream sandwiches, all those sorts of things. But the best part of all this for me, by far, and I promise you this is true, was calling up my dad and giving him the news and hearing his reaction. Now, now. My dad is not naturally easily animated, okay? Um, but I felt like I was um, the, the announcer on The Price is Right, you know, calling him up to tell him he had won a new car or something, right? I mean, you would have thought Ed McMahon from Publishers Clearinghouse had shown up, had given my dad one of those giant checks for $10 million. All I remember about the phone call after I told him is that he kept repeating, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This is too good to be true. Now, maybe you can think about a similar time in your life when, you, when something completely, totally unexpected happened. You went somewhere, you were awarded something, you got some promotion, you got some incredible news, but, but try to put yourself back in that place. What it felt like, what, what was going through your mind, what was sort of stirring in your hearts. And if you kind of get just even get in touch with that, an inkling, okay, then you're into our text this morning in Matthew 28. It's the story of two women. We've already read part of their story in our call to worship, but these are the two Marys. Now, you need to know something. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the name Mary in ancient Palestine was as common as the name John is now. And some, sometimes you don't know which Mary is being referred to. And so in this particular story, it's Mary Magdalene, okay, who had been uh, rescued, saved by Jesus, seven demons cast out. And then 
this other Mary, in fact, they literally call her the other Mary, right? And so, um, in fact, there was like four or five Marys gathered around the cross. But anyway, these were two of the Marys, and their lives had been completely transformed by Jesus. They were rescued from their life of sin and death. They followed Jesus. They were a part of his entourage. He welcomed them in, which in that culture would have been, a, would have been taboo in terms of being women. And they were faithful. They were loyal. In fact, when all the other disciples scattered at the cross, who was still there? The Marys. And when the news came that Jesus was, in fact, dead, you can imagine what a crushing blow this was. Now, for the disciples, it was absolutely crushing because they had put their hopes in what they thought was a, was a, was a Messiah who was going to rescue the nation. They, they, they thought they, were, they had pinned their hopes on King Jesus, the political conqueror. But for Mary and Mary, you just get the sense that this was deeply personal. They stayed till the last at the cross. They were the first ones up in the morning to go see him at the tomb. But when they get there, they are about to discover something that is just too good to be true. And that's where we're going to be in Matthew 28 this morning. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word. If you're new here, we don't do this just to, to make ourselves feel good or it's a ritual or a tradition. It's just to remind us that all of us stand under the word of God. We don't come to it and say, we wish you said this, and so we're going to think this. We say, here we are, Lord, speak. And we listen to him in his word. And so we're going to be in Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Now hear the word of God. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he was going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Let's pray. Lord, probably for most of us, this is a very familiar story. And Lord, we pray that you would use this word in a way that you use this event in the lives of the Marys. That, that the reality of the resurrection, the fact of it, the truth of it, the historical part of it, that it would not end there for us. But in fact, as we are engaging in the truth of this reality, it would be one that transforms our hearts engages our souls, 
and draws us to yourself. And so, Lord, we're asking that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. I mean, it's obvious the ecstasy, the joy, the this is too good to be true. Um, anytime in the Bible it says somebody was running, okay, either something really terrible is happening, okay, or something amazing is happening. And in this latter case, it's the latter here, right? They are filled, Matthew tells us, with great joy. And we, we totally resonate with that. But there's one little detail in this passage that maybe you haven't noticed, or maybe you've noticed it so often you don't notice it anymore. It's almost a throwaway line. It's, it's something that could easily escape our attention, but I think is highly significant to this narrative. And this is this little phrase, and we're going to find it in verse 9, and it says this, they came up and took hold of his feet. And so what you're going to hear this morning for the next few minutes is a little devotional on feet. And I'm, and I'm not kidding, okay? I'm just preparing you, right? Now, as we look at this, it's going to tell us two things, and these will be our two points. It's going to tell us something about his body, meaning Jesus, and it's going to tell us something about our lives. His body, our lives. Let's, let's, let's go back to verse 9 for a second. Um, when we talk, think about his body, I... Growing up, being a child of the 70s, what we did on Saturday mornings was we watched cartoons. That's, that's just what we did. And one of my personal favorites, of course, was Scooby-Doo. You know, the Mystery Machine and Velma and all, you know, Shaggy and all these, all these crazy things. And, and by the way, before I say this, if, when you go back and watch these cartoons and you think you're going to show them to your kids, preview them first because they were really weird. Okay, let me kind of say that. They were completely strange, totally inappropriate. I don't know what our parents were thinking, but, but I remember in Scooby-Doo particularly, there were always this theme of ghosts, right? There's some spirit that was hovering and haunting and saying things. And it was usually some guy under a sheet, but you get the idea. But one of the things that, that was always, I remember, is that they never showed the feet or the legs of the ghost. Do, do, do you know that? And in fact, start paying attention next time uh, when you see ghosts depicted, they're usually this apparition. They're, the, they're a mist. They're this sort of ethereal sort of being. You hardly, rarely ever see their whole body. I mean, if you ride the, the Haunted Mansion at Disney World and the ghost hosts and you see your picture with the ghosts in the background, I mean, that, that's how we stereotypically think about ghosts. And it's no different for people in the ancient Middle East. Do a little research on this. That was the common way people thought about ghosts then. That they, they, weren't, they didn't really have bodies or they didn't have a full body. They just kind of appeared here disappeared, and they were these spooky, crazy sort of things. So when Matthew tells us they took hold of his feet, that's not a throwaway line. It's his way of saying, Four Oaks, that Jesus's body was real. He wasn't a spirit. This wasn't an hallucination. This wasn't a mirage. This was not Obi-Wan Kenobi speaking to Luke while he flies the TIE fighter. That, that's not what this is. This is no ghost. This man is real. His body is real. That's what Matthew's trying to communicate to us. And there, there's a couple of implications of this. Let, let, let me mention them first. Number one, 
what we are seeing is the resurrected Jesus. And the resurrected Jesus has a glorified body, but make no mistake, he has a body. Do you realize one day when Jesus returns and there is a new heaven and a new earth, you know how we pray, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those two things one day will be one. And when that happens, a lot of times we think of heaven in all the wrong ways, right? We think, oh, we're going to be kind of these ethereal beings with wings and we fly around and we have harps and we're on clouds. And that sounds, let's be honest, that sounds awful, right? And if, if, if that's what we are faced with for an eternity, I can see why maybe we wouldn't be so excited about that. But we have the completely wrong idea. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Do you realize when Jesus returns and you belong to him, your body will, ra- will be raised? You will not exist in heaven as a disembodied soul. You're going to be living life on this new earth in a way that reminds you of this life, but only in all the good ways. I don't know what all we will be doing in heaven. I think there's not only worship, there's work, there's recreation, there's purpose. But think about this. Those times in your life when you're experiencing such a moment of exhilaration and you think in your mind, man, I wish this would go on forever, right? But you know also in the back of your mind, it never does. This is going to end. This vacation is going to end. We're going to have to go home. Someone's going to have to go back to where they live. We're going to have to say goodbye. But eternity is going to be one moment after another where we look at each other and we have to pinch each other and say, is this for real? Is is this too good to be true? Where every day will be better than the last. Only possible because of Jesus being resurrected in a real body. The second thing this tells us, and I think this is the one that's most crucial to the text. Matthew's reminding us that apart from Jesus being raised, fundamentally, we have no hope in this life. We have no purpose. We have no meaning. Listen to what Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians 15. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, please hear this, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know, sometimes people, and I heard Dr. John Piper say this, a lot of times we'll have this sort of attitude that, hey, even if this is all a hoax, even if we've gotten it wrong as Christians, even if, if, even if there's, this is, world is all there is, there's no Jesus, no resurrection, at least we've lived a good life, right? At least we've done something meaningful and made the world a better place and we're happier along the way. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, you are most to be pitied, we are, if in fact Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Paul puts a finer point on it. In fact, he says, you're still in your sins. You see, if Jesus was just a man, if he means he was, no matter even if he was a great man, a great prophet, 
a great teacher, a great moral example. No matter how good and noble he was, he is still dead, and a dead man is no savior. Guys, this is, this is, this is why Matthew's pressing us to this point of seeing there's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Either he is the God-man, the Son of God, raised from the grave, and that changes everything, or what are we doing here? Paul would look at us this morning and say, if you don't really believe Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, there are far better ways to spend your Sunday morning. There, there, there's far better ways to leverage your life. Paul would tell us only fools leverage their life for a fantasy. So when we think about his body, this is not a throwaway line from Matthew. Matthew wants to remind us that what we do here is real. We are not playing games. What we, what we believe is based in history. It is a truth. It is not Aesop's fables. It's not Poor Richard's Almanac. It's not a Mother Goose rhyme. It's not a simple moralism we pass down to our kids to help them feel better about themselves and to live a better life. This makes the strongest of claims upon us, as it does these two women, which brings us to our second point. Let's go back to the text. What does this mean for our lives? Verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said greetings, and they came and took a hold of his feet. Now, let's be honest when you haven't seen someone in a long time, parents, your kids come home from college, or there's a family reunion or a class reunion, or you've been apart from your spouse for some length of time, and when you come back together again and see each other, how do you greet each other? I mean, if you're lame, you'll do a fist bump, right? Okay, but, but, but the real people, the humans with emotions and hearts, what do we do? We hug. We slobber on each other just a little bit, okay? We, 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 we warmly embrace, we're, we, we, we hug it out. I mean, that's, that's what we do. And some of you aren't comfortable with that, but you need to get over it. But anyway, you get what I'm saying. But of all the times I've seen reunions, greetings, airports, right? Of all the times I've seen these reunions, I don't think I've ever seen anyone greet someone by laying down, face down on the ground in front of them and grabbing their feet. Maybe you have. Well, this is the way my kids greet me, certainly. And this is the way we greet Susan when she comes in. But other than that, you get what I'm saying, right? It's not the way we do things. That's, that's kind of creepy, Pastor Paul. That's, that's, that's a little odd. That's a little weird. If you don't think so, just try it in public sometimes. See what happens, right? I encourage you. That I'm not joking when I say this. Do a word study, Bible word study on feet. I dare you. And here is what you were going to find, interestingly enough. The way people, sounds weird to stay with me, treat each other's feet tells you something about their relationship. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples, okay? Jesus, on the night he was to betray, be betrayed and die on the cross, He's what? Washing his disciples' feet. Now, what is Jesus wanting to communicate to them about the nature of their relationship? Listen to John 13. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. What's Jesus trying to communicate? I'm your servant. And they're going to look back at that night and know, wow, the way Jesus was supremely the servant is that he laid his life down for us. Now, that's not all Jesus is, but through this act of foot washing, he communicates something about their relationship. Now, just start to notice this when you read your Bibles. You'll see it when people pay homage to kings and queens. They'll, they'll kneel down. They'll, 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 they'll bow. They'll do all sorts of things. But there's only one posture that we see in Scripture where someone grabs someone's feet. And that's always when the presence of God is at hand. Revelation 1 Jesus is the resurrected Christ. And now remember, John, whom he laid his head upon Jesus' bosom, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, probably the closest of his disciples, John comes face to face with Jesus, the resurrected Christ, in, in John's elderly age. And listen to what it says in Revelation 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Why did John fall at his feet face down? He knew this was no servant. This was no earthly king. This was the God of the universe. This was the resurrected Christ. This was the Alpha and the Omega. And John hugs the floor, reaches for the feet, because he knows he is in the presence, the very presence of holy God. Now, do you get a sense that as these women, they don't embrace Jesus, although I think later they probably did. I'm sure they did. I'm sure there were lots of hugs and kisses and those sorts of things, but it's not the first thing they did. What does Matthew tells us? They worshiped. See, there, there is no middle ground for the resurrection. There, there, there's no place for the resurrection to simply say, that's a cool thing, that's an interesting thing, that's... I, that, I, sure, Pastor Paul, I, I believe the resurrection. I believe that happened. I believe God can do that sort of thing. But that's not what James says. Listen to what James says in James chapter 2. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. He might as well say, you believe in the resurrection? Great, Awesome. But you know what? Even the demons believe that. And we know they're not saved. See, holding an intellectual knowledge of Jesus, affirming certain facts about his life and death, you might even say, of course, Pastor Paul, I believe he's the Savior. Of course, I believe he 
he died on a cross and sacrificed for sins and he rose from the grave and, and all that. Guys, you can believe all of that, quote unquote, intellectually, but still die in your sins. While intellectual information and knowledge is necessary, it is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And the scriptures tell us over and over and over again, it is no good, it has no power in and of itself. There has to be worship. There has to be a submission to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There has to be an entrusting of one's life to him to say, you are now my king. You're not a distant king, an abstract king. You're, you're my king, you're my Lord, and now I belong to you. My life is entrusted to you. That's what the women were doing. How about you? This week, uh, a bunch of us went and saw the, the new Michael Jordan movie, Air. Um, it's the, the true story of how Michael Jordan came to sign his first shoe contract with Nike, and he was the first athlete to ever have a shoe made for him. And, and we learned also that Michael Jordan makes $100 million in passive income every year from those shoes. But that's just, that's, that's not in the notes. I just wanted to tell you that, right? But here's what was, was fascinating, okay? Particularly those of us who, 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 were, who came of age in the 80s, right? And we idolized Jordan. And we, I thought I knew a lot about Michael Jordan before this movie, but I came away, all of us I did, I think, with a new sense of appreciation, new like sense of who he was and how he got there and, and what made him tick. Now, as much, as much as that's true, if all of us guys had gotten into the, the car after the movie and driven up to the suburb, suburbs of Chicago, or one, one of Jordan's 10 or 12 houses, you get it, and knocked on the front gate, the one with the big 23 number on it, not 45, but 23, right? And said, hey, we're here to see Michael what do you think he would say? I don't know you, fools, right? <laughs> what, who, who are you? What are you doing here? And we might say, but Michael, we know so much about you. Where you played college ball and your NBA championships and the Chicago Bulls. And we, 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 we go on and on and on with lots of information. But that information will do us no good because we have no personal relationship with him. Guys, can I just say, I think that is a parable for religion in North America, particularly in the South, where we grow up and we learn the facts of the gospel and about Jesus like we're learning the Gettysburg Address or the U.S. Constitution or the Civil War or something else, something, an intellectual set of facts. But as we know from the scriptures, those facts, those realities, without a transformed heart, without a transformed life, won't do us any good. But these women, they're such a model for us. As we come to see who Jesus is and what he has done, and we entrust ourselves to him, submit ourselves to him, have faith in him, oh, amazing things. Sins forgiven eternal life promised, lives transformed, mercy and grace poured out, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know Christ this morning?
I don't mean do you know about him, but do you know him? Have you entrusted your life to him? Folks, this morning we heard one testimony. We're going to hear a couple of more from folks for whom Christianity is no longer a set of historical facts, but it is in fact a life-giving relationship. As they are coming for baptism this morning, I think you will be greatly encouraged, not just for them, but for you to examine your own soul. Do I have a relationship with Christ? Any of us as pastors, elders, milling around here after the service, we would love, love, love to talk to you, to pray for you, and to tell you more about what that relationship has meant to us. Let's pray.